0: Okay, so um, hello everybody and welcome to our next Be Together Life in Care podcast at Barclay Care. Um, My name is Leah, I'm the Chief People Officer here at Barclay, part of the the Clarion community and today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by two very special guests to discuss something which is um, a topic very close to my heart and that is neurodiversity. So the first of my two guests is the amazing Claire Hodges. Claire is our general manager at Blenheim House in Melksham um, and is also a member of our Neurodiversity SteerCo um, working group. And she's a real passionate advocate um, of neurodiversity and inclusion. Um, so welcome, Claire. Delighted to have you here. And my second guest um, is someone who Probably needs no introduction if you've uh, met him before. He is the brilliant Theo Smith. Um, Theo is a neurodiversity advisor, a speaker, and the co-author of the book Neurodiversity at Work. Um if you haven't read that, there's a there's a plug for you there, Theo, brilliant book. Um, and he also works for for the Dynamist Group. So welcome Theo. Great to have you both on. Um, So before we kind of delve into this subject, um, and we can all, I'm sure, talk for hours about this subject, it would be great if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourselves and why neurodiversity is so important to you. Um, Claire, let's start off with you.
1: Hi, Leah. Hi, Theo. Hi, everyone. Um, So I've been a general manager for maybe eight or nine years now. Um, and neurodiversity wasn't something that I really thought about. Um it wasn't something it it it's not in my family. I didn't think that I had friends that were neurodiverse. Um, I've always known there's a little bit of something different about myself. Um, I really struggle with um concentration, um with completing tasks, and uh, yeah, and just thought that was as I was. Um, I think in the last year working for Barclay, um, when neurodiversity has kind of come out into the open and come into its own, it's really allowed me to recognise areas of myself, but also the staff teams. Um, and it, I, I just find it phenomenal. I find it fascinating. And I just feel there's so much more we can do to to allow and enable people with neurodiverse needs to come and work in in what is a very um emotional um and you know an emotional place to work where people with those needs are are just are phenomenal and, and we know that because they work with us already so yeah that's why it means so much to me
0: brilliant thanks claire and theo over to you tell us a little bit more about you
2: Oh, thanks so much! It's really nice to be here. So, yeah, I am a dad of a uh, of a, a child who's who's been diagnosed with autism, ADHD, and dyslexia, um, and that was one of the big drivers for me on this topic. I'm a HR and talent advisor um, by trade, so that's kind of where I've spent the last fifteen plus years. But about five years ago, I came onto the topic of neurodiversity, and it was reflecting upon myself. Um, while I sat in a hotel room um, watching ADHD and me with Rory Bremner and it just triggered oh hang on a minute like that really resonates with me and this isn't naughty boy uh, syndrome or this isn't um, how some of my I resonate with some of my family members and some of them needed more uh, sustainable care 24-7 care in certain instances Um, So then I found it difficult to connect to the concept of ADHD and me until I saw this program of somebody talking about it in a very different way. And that was the beginning of the journey of going uh, on that uh, journey of exploration with my child. And and that's where I started to want to share this concept with the wider world. Um, And so I started to work within my community, within talent and recruitment and HR. um, But I realized there was limited information, so I couldn't really find the positives. There was lots of negatives, lots of things around what somebody who's autistic or ADHD can't do. And they might be a great developer or they might be a great mathematician. Well, I promise you, I'm neither of those. And I never will be. <laughs> so, like, where do I fit in? Like, where does my child fit in? Where do my other family members, where would have my mum fitted in? Because she is definitely MD, right? And where does my sister? And these are undiagnosed people, right? These people who don't come with the label, but they certainly faced the challenges and they certainly had incredible strengths and some of those strengths were disabled, right? They never got to fulfill um, the things that they should have. And they had a lot of trauma uh, and, and challenges with mental health and wellbeing that may have put barriers in place for them to succeed in, in certain areas. So that has been my whole passion now, right? I just want to enable people. I want to enable people who are facing walls that are sometimes so high they can't get over them. That's where the book came from, that's why I've got a podcast, that's why I create loads of video content, but also that's why I now advise companies on the topic of neurodiversity uh, and specifically in the workplace and how they can change their work practices to open the doors to more people.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Thanks Theo and you know at Barclay, we've been working with you now for oh a little over a year haven't we around our, our neurodiversity strategy and and really helping us um to think about how can we support our existing team members who are neurodiverse, but also how can we attract more neurodiverse people? So if we just step back slightly, you know, this term neurodiversity and and we hear other terms like neurodivergent, neuroinclusion. Theo, tell us, you know, what exactly is neurodiversity in these different terms? and, And I guess, why
2: does it matter so much? Yeah, of course. So neurodiversity as a concept is that all our brains are unique and incredible, right? They're all different. But not all of us have been marginalized or system impacted or face barriers just because of the way that our brain works. And that's what's become really fascinating for people. Not that every brain is like a thumbprint, which you could kind of think, well, I kind of would have thought that. Billions of brain cells, that's quite complicated, right? So surely it's, you know, a thumbprint's less complicated than billions of brain cells each one of us so the diversity of human brains um the the critical element of that is that some people because of what we've built over the last probably 100 to 200 years globalization industrialization the internet things ai bright lights busy environments crowded rooms increasing population all of these things have meant that brains that existed on this planet that performed perfectly well you know, when we lived in tribes and we had farms and we lived in different spaces and places and we didn't have these big bright lights and noisy environments, those brains were performing really well overnight, because that's what we're talking about in 100, 200 years of evolution. Uh, overnight have faced these significant barriers that the brain has not had time to evolve. And just quickly to give you an example of where this exists elsewhere, we see this in the animal kingdom. So the Mexican tetrablind cavefish. Right, evolved to be blind in the caves of Mexico because it got flooded, got pushed into these caves. They normally existed with light outside, but they evolved to be blind. First, they lost their eyesight, then they lost their eyes completely because they didn't need them anymore. So they saved energy by not having eyes. Their pigmentation in their skin it was almost became almost translucent, um, because they didn't need the energy it took to create color in their skin. So this is kind of an evolutionary process, actually saying we don't need eyes uh, as these fish and therefore to get rid of them. We can make an assumption that not having eyes means it's less than. That's not the case. In this instance, not having eyes is more than. They are more than capable of fish with eyes in that environment because they use much less energy because you process a huge amount of information through what you see, even when you're asleep. So more competitive because they don't have eyes. Now, we're thinking about the human brain in exactly the same way. We have incredible human brains, but we switched on the lights and they're no longer competitive. The lights are our environments. We can change the environments. To enable this incredible human brains and that for me is why i'm so passionate about neurodiversity and why we built the stuff right we built this stuff that hurts us why can't we change it
0: absolutely brilliant and um the analogy of the fish there theo and neurodiversity absolutely fantastic <laughs> but a really great example isn't it of of differences ultimately and how how we evolve and we adapt claire I was I was just listening to that, Theo, and it's I I feel like something's just
1: clicked and and you know, tell me if I've kind of taken it on board wrong. But it's kind of there's so much going on that there's too much that that people's brains can't focus on things because it's been spread so thinly. Is that kind of what you were saying with regards to the fish? That there's there's just too much coming in. Um, so we, lo- we lose the strength in in because we're trying to spread out our kind of Our brains over so many areas, we're not being allowed to kind of use the strengths that are there because we're trying to do everything instead of do things very well.
2: Yeah, and we're getting pushed, yeah, yeah, and we're getting pushed into environments, we're getting pushed into work practices, we're getting it's all aspects of our life clear. And it's and the problem is it's like I define as like eating kryptonite. Like if we were if we had superpowers, if we were superhuman, and one day we feel great and we can do stuff. And the next day, we completely can't do anything. And the reality is we are feeding ourselves. At first, we're being fed it by others, but now we we don't even notice we're feeding it to ourselves. And and what I mean by that is um, because people tell you, oh, you need to work in a big open plan environment. Everybody does. It's better for you. Um, So you go along with it. And then you get migraines and you get visual order and you get exhausted and you like being with people. But there's this other stuff happening to you that's stopping you being able to do your job. And because everybody else is telling you it's good for you, you keep doing it and it keeps harming you. Your migraines get worse and it gets more impactful. There's a point where we need to go, actually, I like some of this, but it, it is disabling me from being able to do stuff. And these these disabling factors can Throw you off the edge of a cliff. Like it can literally be the point of despair um, because nobody has given you the power to understand that it's the human brain. And if you make some adjustments, it's going to help you. Just like an athlete, if they were struggling in the area of performance, right, they would look at their nutrition, they'd look at how they're training, they'd look at the impact on the body. Exactly the same with the human brain. What are we doing that is pulling the human muscles, the human muscles in the brain? What are we doing? Nutrition, I realised that high, um, high protein diet is really good for me. High carb diet is not. High carb sugars burns me out really quickly. High protein, perform much better, much better at concentrating. I'm not having to take a drug to achieve that. I'm just adapting and changing nutrition, exercise, environment, working in stints, having breaks, thinking about the lighting, the noise, who I meet. Like we are all in control of what we do. But we need to enable each other to be able to do it, to understand what are the triggers, what are the impacting factors that are disabling it. So that's what it is. And then it's like, OK, I don't need to see all day long. I need to switch the lights off and, and I need to think. I need to take some time to walk in the woods or to stimulate creativity. We, we just we just get up every morning and kind of get into this thing of doing what we've always done and what we're told to do. And eventually we burn out and unless What we've seen clear, which is when we get together and we talk like we did, and you come down and you start to analyse it and think about it and discuss it. And you start to go, oh, yeah, I feel a bit like that. And that resonates with me. And that makes so much sense why I did that thing five, 10, 15 years ago. Like I can now see that it was what was happening in my brain. Maybe I could have changed some of those things. Maybe we can change some of those things for others.
1: I I think listening to you again there, Theo, I think um, up until about a year, 18 months ago, I was trying to perform as all the other managers within the group that I worked for. And it was kind of, it was very, this needs to be done on this day and you need to get, you know, your paperwork needs to be done and your audits need to be done and you need to perform at this level and your investigations need to look like this. And I spent so ma- so many years in a, in a really heightened state of anxiety, feeling less than, because I couldn't do what the other people were doing. Within the last year and, and working within Barclay, and I, and I have to take my hat off to everyone that, that's in, been involved in this, because for myself, I've come such a long way. I now do things my way, but get the same outcome. You know, and it, I cannot tell you that by doing things my own way and having people understanding how I work, that they're actually getting the best from me because I'm able to give my best because I'm allowed to do it in my own way, you know, and that's and that's then led to me being able to then roll that out within my own team um, and observing that. The don't work well to being being given instructions that way or they turn up late for work because you know their, their sleep pattern is very different to other people's and it's not about getting them to conform it's about well hang on a minute let's throw conformity out out, out the way Let, let's rid ourselves we we need that person to get into work doesn't matter how we get them there that that's that's the trickery that's that's the uh that's, that's the, the, the coming of speaking to people like yourselves and listening to those people. You know, we can stamp them all with the same stamp. So if they're a care assistant. They need to get in. They need to do this. Well, that's great. But how? What do they need to be able to give us their absolute 110% best? Um, and that's what I find so exciting. And, you know, because it worked for me, the anxiety has, has gone through the floor you know i am what i am you know and, and people accept that and, and once we open our eyes and see what people have to offer and just with a few tweaks we we can we we're getting the
0: most amazing team so yeah thanks claire it's, um y- you've certainly been on a journey haven't you and um yeah. and i know thea you, you've you've worked um with claire around that journey as well and what really struck me is um What this comes down to is we spend a lot of time, don't we, getting to know our residents and understanding what they want and what they need and and what they like. Um, And actually, our team members are just as important in that equation as well. We need to put our teams front and centre and individuals and, you know, have these open discussions about what works for them, what doesn't. Um, How can we help them? How can they help themselves um, as well? Claire, it would be really um, interesting to just touch on some of the things you, you talked about there, particularly around your team. You know, what what is going on in terms of neurodiversity at Barclay and, and some of the work that you've been doing with your team? Chat us through that. OK, so um, it might not surprise you, it might, um, to know that
1: 30 percent of um, our staff team either have a diagnosis or have some kind of neurodiverse aspects to them. Um, And there's an even higher percentage, which is 40% of our staff team have family or loved ones um, that suffer or or that live with neurodiverse needs. Um, I think what we've, it kind of came to me maybe about 10 months ago and I I had a staff member who, and I noticed that Theo referred to this naughty boy, um, who was like a naughty boy. You know, he could never get here on time. You asked him to do anything. It was kind of, you know, it went over his head. But he was the most amazingly genuine, um, empathetic kind of young man i would ever met. Um, and I decided to, to spend a bit of time talking to him and find out what his struggles were. And I spent some time with this young man. And his struggles were that he would go out of a nighttime. He would know he needed to get back home to get to work, but then his friends and his peers would kind of get involved and it would fall by the wayside. Um, we put some measures into place for him, which was that he set himself an alarm for the next day to remind him that he had work. And that alarm reminded him he hadn't the next day, kind of then reset him to kind of change his decision-making for the rest of that evening. Um, Breaking down tasks for him, so he could he could visually see what was expected of him through the day, because if he wasn't given that kind of set um, kind of agenda of what was needed, it it wouldn't automatically um, you know it wouldn't automatically jump into him what he needed to do. Um, that really helped him as an individual but it also opened the conversation with the, with the staff team that how, how we are and, and how we interact with people with neurodiverse needs. And all it is is understanding and kindness sometimes. And pe- every one of us is different, you know, but there, there was always differences that, that people would find more unacceptable. For example, if someone was to have a physical disability you know, whether they'd had a stroke or you know, some kind of physical disability, people were really understanding of that and would say, you know, well, let's let's make changes to the environment because they've got a physical disability. No one knew that that making changes to the way we converse or we assist somebody with neurodiverse needs is exactly the same, you know, you just and, and, and to treat it with kindness and I had the most amazing conversations with staff team. Just sat around the table, and literally, the these the, this particular young man left the care home to went and tried to go and try another um career, uh, but he ended up coming back because he just felt so comfortable within this environment. Um, so that was from a personal level with with Barclay as a whole. I've I've never. I've I've been doing a lot of interviews uh, last two weeks and I will say three out of the six care staff that I've interviewed have neurodiverse needs and what I'm noticing is there's so much as soon as I tell as soon as they mention it to me and then I open up and tell them what we're doing as a group you can see them relax as if like they've come home oh my god I'm going into a company that's really going to look after me and and put the things in place I need um and that's that's phenomenal and you can probably see Leah that I've got a big grin on my face because it's it's like they, they've just never heard of it you know so how amazing is that bark as a company are allowing people to feel comfortable in their own skin and come into work
0: it's so important yeah it's so important isn't it and i just want to pick up on on um something you you said there claire and you know thank you so much for sharing that that insight with us um you talked about this this young gentleman and some of the um uh, barriers that he came across you also mentioned um that he was one of the, the most empathetic people that that you had ever ever worked with my goodness me um, what a strength that is. Theo, just to, to kind of I'll ask you around this kind of idea, I know you talk about super abilities, don't you? Um, the, the perception that um, uh, being neurodiverse, for example, is one which brings difficulties and barriers um Is that still quite common? Is there a shift to more focusing on actually those strengths and the super abilities and and what do they look like?
2: Well, what's really fascinating is the jobs of the future, the increase in the types of jobs that we're going to see, whether it's in, uh, you know, like data security um, or AI, machine learning, all of these uh, very interesting things and um, uh, compliance or um, uh, looking at the planet sustainability and those types of new roles that are going to be generated there are going to be uh, very good roles for people who are autistic or ADHD, which what we're talking about people who face barriers or dyslexic um, for a number of reasons, because they overextend um, in areas, if, if we think somebody like Greta Thunberg, for example, in kind of social justice, in doing the right thing, in seeing things in a very linear way. So you know levels of empathy that are just not seen in in most other people, right? That level level of care and consideration and seeing it as it is. Now sometimes that can feel like a problem, because you've got somebody who's going to call stuff out, right? And they may call stuff out. They may say to you, "You look pretty rubbish today." Now now as, on a human level, you don't want to be told you don't look great, right? You don't you don't look great today. What's wrong with you? But on a if we bring that down to what's going on in that individual's mind at that moment. What they're doing is they're calling out what they see. Now, we need that in our environments because actually sometimes you need that level of kind of direct uh, response to what they're seeing so that we can save people's lives, so that we can catch people before they fall, so that um, we can stop um, uh, organisations making big mistakes that have financial implications. You know, like we need people like that. So what we see in... People who've been marginalized and system impacted, who may have struggled in school or done very well in school, but struggle with relationships and connecting with others, um, is they have super abilities in narrow areas, right? So if we look at this across cognitive skills, when we assess people, whether we assess them for a job or whether we assess them more broadly for other areas or a university, we may assess them across six, seven, eight cognitive skills, right? And most people, they may be scoring high or across certain areas. You know, if you're gonna be a top management consultant, you might score high across them all, right? But in reality, if you don't score uh, fairly well across all of them, you score really high on one and low across the others, you're never getting through the door because the way that we're assessing is based on the overall score across all cognitive areas. So this is the problem that we have at the moment that is a reason why almost 80% of people with an autism diagnosis in the UK don't have a job today. Right. Fact. Now, pre-COVID, more of them were in work, but they were in part-time work. But obviously part-time jobs went during COVID. So we've got a huge proportion of workers, potential workforce, who are not in work. they sat at home. They've done work, but they can't get back through because they've got high cognitive abilities in a narrow area, high level of empathy as an example, or highly creative, great people skills, um, or brilliant mathematician, <laughs> um, or combination, <laughs> depends. But um, but But we're not letting them through because of the ways that we assess, because of the ways that we interview, because we look at them and think, oh, you're gonna be a problem, rather than thinking, well, if I could just help you with these areas, You would be the most empathetic person in our team. And by the way, that's going to be really useful when you put when we put you in front of family members, when we really need to understand what the core problems are going on within the environment, when we really need to get to the heart of the problem. Right. Because sometimes you don't want to spend all your time in the heart of the problem, but sometimes you need to know what is. You miss it. Compliance problem. Right. Um, So it's these super skills that individuals have got. That we at the moment are letting them sit at home. And if anybody's getting confused around what this looks like, this isn't just um, potential care staff or nurses, or this is senior executives. This is these people sat at home with a PhD or two, right? I'm not, I kid you not, who cannot get into work because they cannot get through the recruitment assessment process. Irrelevant of the fact they're geniuses, academically brilliant in their narrow area. They can't get through this measure, which is across these six cognitive skill areas. So we've got to think about what can we change to enable that? And some organizations have recognized this. JP Morgan, Chase, IBM, Microsoft have been looking at this for about 10 years. Actually, they struggle a bit more because of their size complexity. Um, They've. Shown that it works in small programs, that if you enable these people, these individuals, they go on to outperform their neurotypical um, counterparts. Right. If you give them the right tools to be able to enable them into those narrowed skill areas. Right. They out, uh, J.P. Morgan identified as about 138 percent more productive than their counterparts. There was a great example of somebody in my village where I live who's nonverbal. Right. He he can't um, communicate uh, verbally, like many of us, he's autistic. Yet through a government incentive and scheme, he got to work for a company uh, whereby they gave him a longer onboarding process and they took him away from the normal recruitment assessment process. The team, they did an interview with him and the team identified him as a better worker than any of them. So what they had to do is because they had to check for health and safety, They couldn't get him to fill out the health and safety form or go online and do it. They had to visually get him to like throw a spillage on the floor and see how he responded to it to score him. So a different process to assess that he's got the skills to be in the environment. So he's not a risk. Right. But because they adapted the way that they assessed, he got the job and then they created cards. Because he's not communicating verbally, he can communicate with a card like I need this. I need to do that. I need to go for a break, I need more work. And all of his workers, in in what was a very typical manufacturing type environment, at the beginning, were like, I don't know how this guy's gonna work with us. Like, can't speak, right? How's that gonna work? To, we can't give this guy enough work. This guy beats us all in terms of his productivity. And his mum and dad came on and went, on the weekends, he's asking if he can go into work. Because for him, this is the place, he loves the routine, the structure, the coming in, being valuable getting paid like this yet you could easily say well he can not he can't communicate by voice so what's the point rubbish and and the the changes were were not difficult they were not costly but they needed to happen up front and once you got over the up front bit boof employee for life and smashing it out of the park
0: wow what, what a, a really inspirational story there and i think it, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that um, it, it's not always big changes that, that need to take place um, or even things that cost money, actually. Sometimes it's more about our habits and our processes and, and adapting things to meet individual needs. Um, it's really, really interesting. And Yeah, just to go back to, you know, you said 80% of people with autism don't have jobs. If you think about the care industry at the moment and the number of vacancies um, that that we have in the the industry, if we were just to attract even 1% more neurodiverse individuals to the sector, not only would we have a um, really beautifully diverse workforce with many different strengths um, and skills,
2: Um, we potentially could also solve our recruitment crisis. A couple of things on that. In short, yes, this is not a UK problem. This is the same stats reflected in the US, right? And we know they probably exist across Europe, but the data is not available. This is government data. And those are only people with an autism diagnosis. We know Uh, Only one in three or four of people with an autism autism diagnosis are women. We know the health sector overextends on women in terms of women within roles, which is really important. So you could enable more women into the workplace um, who didn't benefit from the autism diagnosis because you don't need the label and ADHD, who, by the way, will also face challenges when they hit perimenopause and menopause that's not recognised and understood because of the changes within the body, within the mind. Often women who didn't get the diagnosis, who don't understand some of the challenges they had in puberty hits them in their late 30s, early 40s. And those challenges can be significant, especially if they don't know what's going on. And as an employer, you don't know what's going on. Now, I guarantee you, you've got those women in your workplace already and they will be hitting that point. And if you're not even thinking about menopause, perimenopause, menopause, and the impacts of neurodiversity on that whole piece, whoa, like what are you doing? You're walking into fire without like any protection because you just you're going to you're going to um, you're going to have employees leaving. Right. And the it, mental health and well-being will be impacted um, and you're going to lose great people simply. But the other thing is this is social responsibility. Right. Think about this is social mobility. Right. So as an organisation, think around the push from the EU and from other governments, countries around uh, social responsibility, um, social mobility. Like this gets even bigger when you put it in that context. And as Claire already said, almost half your workforce is already being impacted in some way, shape or form. So, like, shut your eyes to it if you want. Watch good employees leave. Watch productivity go down the drain. Watch mental health and well-being hit a wall, which it is broadly across the globe, for not only those reasons, many other reasons. But we can can rectify some of this stuff, right? But not if we say it's too much to think about. It'll hurt you more by saying it's too much to think about. That's a reality, a fact. If you start to deal with it, some front-end changes, adjustments and considerations and human connections will make a massive impact and difference, as Claire knows.
1: I I just want to say as well, if if we're looking at how we enable these people to come into our workplace, you know, we we, we want to start at the beginning. We want to start with the recruitment process, which is the part of the steer group that I'm going to be um, sitting on. But we've actually already got the people within our employment at the moment to help us take us back to the beginning. So we're going to go full circle because we already employ people that have neurodiverse needs, ADHD, autism, dyslexia. Why don't we utilise those people to then tell us how to make the recruitment process look? So we're not doing it blind, we're just having to equip those people to to bring their ideas and their knowledge of their of their own conditions, of their own neurodiverse needs, and put them back at the beginning with us to then start that re- recruitment process to get more and more of these eighty percent of people that are sat at home. I will just say I'm nearing menopausal age now, so please be on on the watch out for that, guys. So, so it's all great. it's all downhill from here, I think. <laughs>
2: Just an, another thing as well. I work with an organisation where a manager and an employee came up to me after a the talk. They uh, they own uh, a, a variety of things: hotels, manor houses, uh, uh, and but the I did a talk, and the person responsible for forestry, looking after the the forests within that group, um, and that employee came up to me afterwards and went, "That really resonated." Ultimately, the very short story is, um, and I recorded a podcast on this, but the manager recognised some challenges with the employee. They told them that they have seizures. These seizures in their employment got worse. This individual who got a first class degree in forestry sometimes couldn't even tell him what an oak tree was, right? Because in the moment they were panicking and and, and they couldn't recall things immediately, even though they were an expert in, in uh, their field. Um, and these uh, seizures got worse and worse until through speaking with his wife who worked in teaching, she said, do you think she could be autistic? And he was like, I don't know, isn't that a naughty boy syndrome again? And he's like, and she's like, no, you know? And he said, well, because he had a close relationship with her because she'd come in straight from university and he really wanted to help her. And because she couldn't drive because of these seizures, he had to pick it up and drive around quite a bit. He sat in the car and went, could you be autistic? And that led her on a journey of reflection and answer was i don't know anyway they got the autism diagnosis they support her to get the autism diagnosis they then worked with her on making simple adjustments sometimes like they didn't need to worry so much if she cried sometimes the the century overload meant that she became tearful or that she needed to lie flat on the ground or that she needed to take time out but ultimately she is an incredible employee so when he made some of these adjustments, like, well, sometimes people go out for a cigarette or whatever else, right? Why can't she just lie on the floor somewhere and have five minutes in a darkened room, right? And when they start to enable these things and also support with some self-care at home, she wasn't eating. So he, he organized with a, a company to have food delivered, you know, um, so that she didn't have to think about her food. When she got home, it was delivered and the ingredients were there and she could just make it. All of these things meant she started to eat. Um, there were other health related factors that were having an impact on her. Within about six months of that period starting, her seizures stopped completely. Her wow. seizures stopped. So when, if any of you are thinking like, what's the point? Too much effort. On a human level, you've got somebody who's having seizures in the workplace and prior to joining. And through the changes and considerations, just by being human and helping them in a real empathetic way and not using it against them, which unfortunately sometimes happens, um, it, it transformed her life. She was getting into periods of depression because she was going on wondering, why, why does this dream job not work for me? It doesn't make sense. because Everything I've worked towards is this special interest. Yeah, I can't. I don't like it. But to. Uh, now now I can do the things that I'm really good at, I enjoy the environment. And I just, like, on a human level, those changes are gonna improve people's lives and people live in communities, people have families, they have relationships, it, it will impact on everything. And I think as a caring organisation who you don't just have residents, who by the way may also be autistic or ADHD and they may uh, have dementia and they've got family members who may also be autistic, and you've potential new business making from those eight. So when you think about it as an organization, it's not just your people, you have a responsibility that just spreads so far and wide that if you start to do it, what you are, which is why I love the work that you're doing, it the impact is, is far and wide. So next time I'm stood on the playground, I'm not gonna hear a parent talking really dismissively around autism, you know, just being a problem. Or I don't want my child playing with a child who's autistic or something like those that come from employees, people who work in jobs, right? We can change all those minds to make a a better world for all of us. So bit of a rant there, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, no, brilliant, Thea. And, and you're absolutely right. We all have a part to play as individuals and as organizations, don't we? So um last kind of few reflections um from, from you both. If um if there was one or two things that that you would suggest for our listeners, particularly if they're employers or their managers, to do around supporting individuals who are neurodiverse, either their existing individuals or or people coming into, into the sector, what would that be? So um Claire, let's get go with you first. Um. I think
1: my advice would be to listen to the person not not um not an employee because if you're listening to that person's everyday struggles you're you're hearing so much more about them whereas if you're kind of just itemizing it to what they do as a job so let take take the time to speak to them you know and and just be and and also share a little bit about yourself not you know I, I think as soon as you open up to people and tell them that you've had struggles and, and not everyone has but just just allow yourself to be a bit more open with people and in turn they may well be open with you and, and you may be able to help and as as Theo says you know this this is about human kindness isn't and this is about doing doing things for for people across the board um so, yeah, listen, listen and learn. And, and yeah, we, we can all do a little something. It, it doesn't have to be a big thing, but we can all do a little something. And, yeah, I, I think it will make a huge difference.
2: Thanks, Claire. And Theo? Yeah, it's aligned to that. It's uh, Covey said it really well. It's, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And as somebody whose brain works very, very quickly, that's not always easy for me to do because I almost just want to talk. And wait until I find the solution rather than listening, first of all. And I think Claire did it beautifully in, in the example that she was talking about where she had an employee where she could have just tried to like jump in and, and build the solution out straight away. Right, I see a problem, here's the solution. Whereas actually, when you spend more time listening and understanding and not prejudging, because some of the stuff that may be shared with you may be challenging for you to or get your head around because you're in a different space or place, or you've never been in the space and placed it in, right? So you can make all kinds of judgments about the decisions, what's going on, whether it's right or wrong. All of that's not really going to help you finding the solution. Being able to really uh, sit back uh, and and let them share some of those experiences, take them away and further educate yourself outside of that, and then bring some of those learnings back in. That's where I've seen the most successful um, relationships between, and it doesn't have to be manager-employee, it could be employee-employee, because often we see a lot of struggles there, one employee struggling with the other one because the other one keeps forgetting to do the stuff and that means they have to pick up the extra workload and all. So you you can quite quickly get a group of people who are arguing and, and not getting along. Um, when if we could just all step back and think about what's really going on there and what things we could put in place to support Uh, each other I think that's a much better place to come from.
0: Brilliant and um, finally Theo what can our listeners do to take their learning to the next level where can they go to find out more information?
2: So um, there's so LinkedIn uh, is for me a a very powerful place and where I share a lot of my content information so they can find me on LinkedIn I have a newsletter that I put out weekly that has hints tips advice from that week um that's not too long so you can follow that if you would like there's the book if you want to geek out if you don't want to geek out and you're not of uh, the mind to to read a book of this type it's on amazon and everywhere else um i've got a podcast where i do uh, similar to what we're doing today but it's hyper focused on neurodiversity and neuroinclusion. inclusion so i talk to all different types of people from different spaces places on that topic so you can tune into that um there's also a lot of people sharing neurodiversity content in different areas as well now so you'll get your finance expert that advises people on finance and business will have their neurodiversity lens and they want to share that you'll have your HR experts you'll have your CEOs your there are lots of people who are experts in a particular area but they also do it through the lens of neuroinclusion inclusion and neurodiversity so dependent on your area of interest you can go and find that or if you're a parent and you need help um, there are a lot of groups in places like Facebook, um, where there are community groups that focus on localised areas like my local area where I live. There's a group that specifically talks about how to advocate for your child, how to get help for your child, how to work with the education system. And I would imagine there are similar groups across the globe um, with, that you can join um, to, to hear from other people going through the same experience.
0: Brilliant. Thanks, Theo, so much out there. And, um, you know, we'd uh, certainly on our, our journey at Berkeley, we, we've been through um, and we are continuing to go through our, our learning journey. And we'd encourage anybody um, to, to follow those, those examples that, that Theo has given. Theo, Claire, our time is up. Thank you both so much. It's been an absolutely brilliant conversation um, and we look forward to seeing everybody on our next podcast. Take care.